Welcome to Software Security Chat Chat, episode 61 for May the 27th, 2011. I'm Chester Wisniewski, and this week I have a guest from our technical support department who works with some of our larger uh, accounts that get premium service, and Paul's with me. Welcome, Paul. Hello, Chip. And today I have Paul here as a guest. We're going to talk about kind of, you know, we've been hearing a lot about data breaches and viruses and all these really big companies. And, you know, maybe Lockheed was compromised and we had RSA breach in the past. And him and I are going to talk for a little bit about kind of what, you know, what are we doing wrong? Like, how are all these big companies with big security teams and all the latest products and, you know, things installed getting owned, you know, even though they have all this stuff. So that'll be uh, the, the interview portion of our segment. Today, I'm going to start with just a few news items from the week. Uh, most of this week's news has been more and more and more of the same, which is data breach, data breach, data breach, data breach. Uh, we saw, of course, Sony ended up uh, getting breached about four or five more times since last week's chat chat. And it uh, looks to be that uh, people upset with Sony for suing George Hotz uh, over the, uh, kind of breaking the encryption keys of the PlayStation 3 have been systematically identifying every Sony asset globally that they can find and performing things uh, like SQL injection attacks against websites and dumping databases. It, it seems to basically be a giant public smear campaign against Sony. However, obviously they have plenty of things that are insecure out there or these things wouldn't be happening. I mean, I think the total number of data breaches now is about 10 or 11, depending on how you count them uh, in the last six weeks at Sony, including four or five just over the past weekend. So, that was a big, uh, big news event, and we'll talk a little bit about kind of um, you know best practices in, in a few minutes with Paul. In addition to that, on the data breach news front, uh, Honda of Canada announced they lost data on about two hundred and eighty thousand Canadians uh, who had registered with the My Honda portal in two thousand nine. And uh, that is another situation that looks like an insecure web portal of some sort. And in a similar vein to one of the Sony attacks, uh, they're now kind of saying that it was a database that was left behind by a third party that they thought the data had been destroyed, but in fact, it was still laying around on the network and, and ended up being compromised by by uh, attackers. I don't know if I would necessarily identify them as cyber thieves this time around, considering that um, the data that was stolen is pretty useless. They only got away with names, addresses, and vehicle identification numbers. Of course, your vehicle identification number is available through your windshield to anybody that wants to see it, so it's not exactly a secret, although certainly a lot of people uh, regard their name and address as a very private thing, and it's rather unfortunate for the people involved in that incident that someone may, may now have that information and try to use it against them. Other news, Apple, um, still in the news. We, we talked last week with Ben Jupp on the chat chat about the the Apple security situation. Unfortunately, the people behind the malware seem to be marching forward with advancing it quite quickly. And this is one of the, the fears some of us in the you know anti-malware community had around OS X and Apple security was that when we did start seeing stuff that it would start advancing more quickly than you might expect because they're able to apply the techniques they've learned through attacking Windows users over the years and now are taking those very same techniques of obfuscation and and changing the code to uh, to uh, to to bypass your your antivirus software and this type of thing to attack Mac users. Uh, the latest thing that they've picked up on is uh, a technique they used in Windows to bypass user access control in Windows Vista and Windows Seven, which is writing themselves to the user's directory in places where the user has permission without administrative rights 
uh, to ensure that they're still embedded into the system. So they've been able to bypass the pop-up that asks you for the administrator's password when installing the fake anti-malware solution for Mac, meaning that users may be even less um, scared of you know putting their details in or, or clicking continue or yes, uh, because they think it's actually a pop-up from Apple of some sort warning them about viruses. So that situation gotten a little worse. One thing I'm hoping doesn't happen, being that it, you don't have to enter your administrative password, there's really no good reason for them not to, uh, to even use an installer at all. Currently, it still does pop up with an installer. It requires you to click continue. And then after you click continue, uh, you know, then it, it proceeds to infect the system. But the techniques they're using now, they could get, they could get rid of that entirely and just bypass everything and make it a true drive-by like we see with a lot of Windows exploits when you're surfing the web with a vulnerable plugin or a vulnerable browser. So that's kind of the news for this week, the, the big news anyhow. I mean, there's your standard, uh, you know, Facebook this and Twitter that. But, you know, the, the things that are really affecting us that we need to think about, I think, are, are things like are Max protected? And in the case of the data breaches, uh, are we next? Like, do you have data that you didn't realize a third-party contractor left laying around in your network? So moving on to the interview with Paul, um, Paul has a lot of experience working with some rather high-profile organizations in designing kind of a security plan to deal with situations where they know they're going to be a target of attacks, they have a lot of reputation on the line and this type of thing. And so I thought it might be interesting to hear how he's dealt with uh, both our customers and in his uh, own experiences as an IT guy. In fact, was it was a customer of ours at one point on dealing with these problems. And, and his success rate is a lot greater than what I see most um, IT administrators out there having in the security space. So I thought maybe Paul would share some of his insights with us today. So to begin with, Paul, I mean, all these data breaches, I mean, uh, not specifically necessarily the, the websites at Sony and all this, but we're seeing tons and tons of companies, you know, RSA says they have an intruder that, you know, they didn't detect and a bunch of data was exfiltrated. And uh, the, now we're hearing, you know, Lockheed shut their network down last weekend out of concerns that maybe RSA tokens, you know, were compromised enough that allowed some attackers to get into their network. And obviously they have a very sensitive um, network with a lot of the secrets they keep for the U.S. government. Like, what are we doing wrong? Like, what is the average IT guy? I mean, I have to assume Lockheed and RSA have uh, client firewall and antivirus. They probably have IDS IPS. They've got, you know, they, they've got the resources to, to have all the Uber tools. So they followed the roadmap. What's gone wrong? I think they probably do. I think they probably have all the tools and they're following all the industry best practices. The thing is, what are you getting from those tools? When you're listening to your security tools, and, and this is why you buy them, you, you buy them to achieve something and to tell you what's going on in your environment. What, what are they doing when they're listening to the tools? Are, are they seeing attacks on the network? Are they seeing things come out? Or have they got these tools that log so much data that they're just not able to make sense of what's really going on in their environment? So you're saying like the signal to noise ratio is too great? Exactly. The, the companies I see do really well with security are very focused on things. They've cut down the noise and they see something and they basically go after it and investigate where it's come from. Am I being targeted? Is it running on my systems? What is it trying to do at the moment? So how, how, how do you weed out all that um, noise? Like, I mean, what is a good technique for eliminating some of that noise? I mean, do you just take off? Do you do you target the biggest things first you know you look and you see tons of activity of some sort that seems to be malicious and you go well let's solve that problem to get rid of that noise i see a lot of industry professionals look at the best practices and and do some check boxes and say i have antivirus i have an ids 
I have SIM, and, and that's good enough. So they're doing the PCI dance. There's a checklist, and if I tick the boxes, I'm good. Well, yeah, and they have to in a lot of cases because their industry's banking uh, regulates them, so they, they have to do these things. That is honestly just a starting point. If you're meeting the best practices in the industry, that's not that should not be your security posture. That should be your starting point, and you build upon that. One of the things I really like to talk to uh, my customers and anybody listening, this is great to do. Go up to a whiteboard, draw a web threat, and then map it as it comes down to your machines. What, what is it going to look like? Is, is it going to run on your endpoint? Is it going to exploit your Java and run? And what's that going to look like now from your security systems? What so are they going to tell map you? Map it to the, um, the layered defense that you have in place. So you map out what all the stuffs are of, a, of an average attack and then map out, okay, which pieces of our stuff should be acting at which levels and checking that your policy would actually prevent it? Exactly. So let's take a targeted attack. A couple of people have received an email or a URL of some type. They've clicked on it. You've gone to an attack site. Some attack code has come down, and it's now running on your box. So Operation Aurora. That was the description given by the victims of Operation Aurora. They got emails to some innocent victims within the organization with a link leading them somewhere that then had an exploit that happened to exploit their browser, in this case, Internet Explorer 6. Um, but, you know, that's the, the, the template, right? I mean, that... That's a pretty standard probably attack, is, right? It probably is a good template, and we see this all the time. Users get a link from somewhere, from a search engine or through their email. Facebook. They click on it. Facebook's a good example, and they click on it, and, and now, unbeknownst to them, code is running on their machine. So as a security architect or the security team, what should that look like? What type of alert should I be getting now that, that code is running on my box? Should code be allowed to run on my box to start with that's come from another source? Um, am I getting any alerts from my antivirus product? Probably not. If it's a targeted attack, it's probably being custom written for you. So if you believe that your antivirus product is going to alert you and say, this is virus X, that is probably not going to happen. This is where your, your hips type products, your zero day type protection, your firewalls quarantining things on the desktop and reporting back to your central systems that some new and unknown thing is running, that's, that's really where you need to start. And this is, this is not best practice. This is beyond best practice. Right. So, I mean, let, let's take those, a few of those components and break them out as to like how maybe they're being used and how they could be used. And one of the favorite ones that you just brought up that I think both of us get excited about when we're trying to explain to people how to do it better is the firewall. And I go into companies and there's still this concept that there's an inside network and an outside network and that they're different, that somehow the threat magically stays outside the big firewall and that when everybody's on the inside, once you're on the inside, just let everything run and, and that that's safe somehow. And so the firewall seems to be block all incoming if it's from the internet, but if it's on my LAN, hey, everything's game, net BIOS, this, that, the other thing, everything's good. And then on the outbound side, well, I don't want to get a few phone calls about that one app we didn't know about. So we'll just allow everything out. That's, that's pretty typical because, again, it's not really covered by any best practice. So people are kind of free to, to make up, I guess, kind of what, what they want. So they installed the firewall, but they're not really using it for much of anything. Uh, in many cases, no. They kind of think, yeah, uh, I'm going to block stuff coming in, but I'm going to let everything else go out. And if you sit down and you map out all these targeted attacks, you, you bought up Aurora. Uh, we've seen targeted attacks here that we've worked on, and it's the same thing over and over again. Code comes down, code runs. You could stop it at the, the execution level on that machine, and you could quarantine it, and your security systems could alert on this. But this is a, a big gap, I think, that nobody's really paying attention to. They're letting code run, 
it then gets out onto the network and then they're basically in your network and they can do what they need to do. Yeah, once they're in, most rules seem to not apply anymore because it's somehow assumed that everybody on the inside must be a good guy and, and uh, you know, the attack really has changed. I mean, 10 years ago, that wasn't that bad of a thought when the biggest threats to the world were code red and this type of thing, which were network worms trying to probe for open ports that were listening out on the open wide internet to, to have a vulner, you know, an unpatched SQL server or whatever it might've been. And, and that was the most common attack vector back at the time. So it's almost like the best practices haven't really, haven't caught up with the, you know, the, the first new decade of the 21st century. I mean, the, the threat landscape has changed. We all know that. I mean, I don't have to tell our listeners that, gee, the web is a threat. I mean, I know you're smart enough to know that the web is a threat, but we haven't really adjusted our policies to recognize this alternate alternate vector in how we you know, deploy our tools. Um, you, you mentioned hips and things like that. I mean, you would, you know, again, there, there's a big fear of false positives out there with those technologies. Have they matured enough that, you know, you can, again, is the signal to noise ratio correct? I mean, can you deploy those tools and get meaningful alerting? What I see is that uh, many organizations have their antivirus deployed in read-only status, and that's effectively their security posture. They're following an industry best practice, and it's set and forget. With security tools like SIM and IDS and you've raised HIPS and the firewall, these are all things that have to be managed. If you're going to be successful here, you have to manage them. You have to be listening to them. You have to be adjusting them to new threats when they come out. When you see some behavior you don't like, you need to go and you need to change something. So the companies I see that are successful in security are the ones that are looking at their environment. They've got the tools out that are working for them, and they're really listening to the data that's there. They also regularly review their security every three, six, or 12 months and say, how can we better configure things uh, than we have today? And hopefully not waiting for that Sony moment, that RSA moment, and then having to go back and do a retrospective on what went wrong, but maybe looking forward a bit more during those planning sessions. And and I guess that's how you avoid being one of those brands. Exactly. Uh, A great example you brought up earlier was the Lockheed Martin issue and how they've effectively cut off access because they found an issue internally. That's exactly what you want to be doing. You want to find your issues internally as it's happening rather than six months later. Yeah, it's good to catch things early and and, and to be cautious. And I mean, sometimes it can cause a little bit of disruption, and I'm sure it's costing Lockheed millions, if not tens of millions of dollars a day that certain employees are cut off from getting remote access to the network. Yet, compared to what is at stake if they didn't, they're doing the right thing, even if it is maybe overreacting. It's hard to know. They're not going to probably ever disclose what happens, so we'll never be able to analyze it ourselves to to learn from it, other than to know that they seem to have taken quick action based on an anomaly that they were watching for. They knew what they were watching for, and when it happened, they took action. And it's similar to the case of LastPass um, about a month ago, seeing an, a, an inordinate amount of data leaving their network, and they weren't sure why. And their instant reaction was, okay, cut off access to it, notify everyone that could have possibly been impacted by it, force everyone to change their passwords, rather inconvenient. Many customers were inconvenienced by it, weren't very happy about it. But if it turns out that their suspicions were true and they were watching for these things, obviously most organizations I know would not notice that a large amount of data suddenly was leaving the network in a way that was an an abnormal pattern uh, because most people aren't watching. They don't even know what their baseline is. Well, exactly. And and you brought up the fact that somebody's listening to something and they're seeing some strange behavior and then they're they're taking some action to basically stop that from happening. That's not really in a best practice anywhere. That's not saying, hey, deploy IDS and 
and uh, actually take action. So they've gone above and beyond the industry best practice here. Well, if you're doing it correctly, it, it seems in the organizations that I've worked with that seem to work at it pretty hard, it actually isn't that much harder than the running around and reacting to all the problems you have when you're not doing it. I mean, if you've got these tools and you actually use them properly, then you reduce the amount of incidents, the amount of things you have to be running around and doing, and it doesn't take that much more time than reacting to all the problems you have when you don't do it. That's absolutely true. You're going to see a dramatic reduction in the amount of work you have to do long term by taking this kind of uh, proactive approach and trying to seek out problems before they happen. Dealing with one or two machines that have a problem is far better than dealing with two or 3,000 machines. Well, and it's a different kind of work, and I think that might be another reason we see some of these problems in that it's not difficult to justify uh, some, some regular help desk folks to run around and clean up machines and re-image them. Um, they're not the highest paid workers in the industry, all this kind of thing. And when you go and say, hey, I want to hire this big hotshot security guy to come in and put in an awesome plan for my company, even though it probably is cheaper to hire that guy compared to the legion of people you have to hire to run around and fix all the problems, organizations just don't think that way. They, they see a very expensive investment in a person as something that, you know, they're too small for, or they don't have, you know, we're not in the security business, we make widgets. Um, and yeah, we're going to have to have an IT staff and, you know, hiring 12 interns over the summer to reimage all of our boxes is just something we have to do every year because we get infected. And it, it, to me, I always just never really understood how organizations can, can not see um, you know, the, the cost differences there because there's nothing wrong with employing all those kids uh, that get to learn how to image boxes, but it's not the most intellectually challenging work. If you want people that really get security, they need to be interested. And if you can, if they can eliminate all the everyday stuff and focus on the other things, then everybody wins. You've got less security incidents, less data lost, less problems in your organization, and you have a staff that's actively intellectually engaged in something that they're interested in and can continue to improve and iterate on that process. Um, is there anything else you'd like to bring up uh, uh, related to this stuff? I mean, I think these are the kind of things that I was really hoping, you know, you and I have had a lot, have had a lot of private conversations about these kinds of things. Yeah. And in our experience, it's just always shaking our heads going, how, you know, how do we, we have friends that agree with us that work in the IT world out there. And they're trying to preach to their colleagues that this is the way forward and they're not getting the support they need or that, you know, nobody's listening to them necessarily. And so we were hoping to share this message with the uh, chat chat audience today so that more people can think about it maybe a little different than the way they're going about it now and be more open and receptive to uh, a new approach to protecting yourself against these problems. Because, I mean, obviously the guys in Sophos Labs bust their butts. They do. Uh, 24-7, 365 to, you know, try to provide the closest thing to 100% detection we can. But we know we can't provide perfect protection. We also know that it takes a lot of different components and that they need to be deployed correctly. And half the time our guys in the labs and on the tech support phones here, um, they spend with our customers is trying to explain to them how to use those layers properly, how to map those layers to the threats that they're fighting rather than continuing to keep fighting the same fires because one single point product can't you know do the job on its own. It, it requires these different layers and interactions and it requires some human intelligence to sew all that together. And, and making it, you know, make it into something meaningful. So, Paul, um, to wrap up today's chat chat, uh, do you have a couple pieces of advice you could leave us with that you think would make a big impact on, on security in anyone's organization? Sure. I think I have three main items. Uh, number one, best practice. Look at what the industry best practice is. That's your baseline. Move beyond it. Don't just accept that best practice, this is where I need to be. You need to go above and beyond that. Second part is, is what you're doing today working for you with the security tools you have? Are they giving you the information you need 
to be able to defend your environment. If they're not, reconfigure them. If they don't work for you, start looking for something better. Number three, new threats. Every day on our blog or online, you're going to hear about new threats and new companies have been targeted and successful APT attacks. Every time you hear about one of these, I want you to sit down and map it out at your desk. Map it out on a whiteboard. Grab your security team and say, hey, if this was to happen to us, what would it look like? How would we be picking it up? And if you're not picking it up or you don't feel that your security defense is adequate, now's a good time to sit down and make a plan and implement that plan. So how can you, know, how can you tweak your settings to make sure you are picking it up or is there a gap in your strategy? Exactly. Uh, you know, is the code going to run on your machine? If you have Java installed on your desktops, is it going to be allowed to go out to the internet and go to wherever it wants to go? That's a common piece. Java will go out and pick up a malware component and bring it down. Yep. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for next time. Uh, we're running a bit long. So um, that wraps up Software Security Chat Chat 61. As always, for all of our podcasts, you can get them from podcasts.sophos.com or on iTunes. We also have an RSS feed, and they're always on our award-winning news site, nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And until next time, stay secure.